and if you hear any other noises they're literally doing so much construction in my building right now so it might just be my building is falling down around me if i hear a little ah i'll know we're like oh <laughs> yeah lost jamie she's gone we lost her Welcome to the Whiskey Topic. My name is Mark Bylock. And I'm Jamie Johnson. And today's Whiskey Topic is going to be Scotch 101. Is that what we're doing? We're doing Scotch 101. I need to, I need to know everything. Awesome. Awesome. But first, we're going to uh, do some follow-up from the show before. And I think um, it was uh, Linus Edwards. Uh, we were talking last week about um, how some people just think whiskey burns. And when they describe whiskey, their tasting note is burn it burns and that that's as far as they get and we had this conversation like i wonder what 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 should we do like what's what's the answer here when you're doing a tasting and and somebody just you know i've tried all these different methods water it down do this do that do that and uh linus edwards uh, sent us a link on twitter thank you that said um some people just are genetically more likely to feel pain and that's it that's it Uh, in their throat like they're more likely to feel the burniness of alcohol yeah and i i think that I guess that's I guess that's a kind of a freeing statement. Like, it is what it is, and there's really not too much you can do about it. I think that sometimes there might be a little bit of like an expectation where people are, you know, they expect it to burn really bad, and so it seems to burn really bad. But if they really just sort of didn't worry so much about the burn or anticipated the burn so much, but I think that it's also really good to sort of have that thing where it's like, okay this is just how it is and like some people will you know cope better with it or or just not be able to because they just can't it's just their genetic makeup yeah i mean exactly and immediately when i read this i went to because i did the uh, 23 and me uh genetic test and i was like does 23 and me have like this like you know is that one of the things because they'll tell you different things like um in the old way like before they got closed down for a lot of these things they would tell you like oh you taste bitters more or oh you you know you process like cholesterol this way or that way so they would give you like health information mm. and i was wondering oh maybe they have a test for like alcohol they, they did they do have a test for like whether or not your um your uh, cheeks get like rosy from alcohol you know because uh, some oh, people right. will have over like immediately they have a drink and boom red cheeks yes um so they did have a test for that but they did not have a test for whether or not alcohol tastes burning which you know because i feel like now i need to do a test okay who's got their genetic testing done who's gonna do it yeah yeah can you imagine if that was a question that you asked during like tastings you'd be like okay everybody the prerequisite to this tasting is everybody needs to go for a genetic test Jamie, that noise in the background is coming loud. It's so bad, right? So, are they building a building right behind your condo? No, they're they're renovating. They're renovating our lobby, and they're renovating like the third floor or something like that. And they're turning the storage lockers into new apartments. And then anytime there's a free apartment, they're upgrading all of it. So, and then they're doing the outside. Like next time, if you go by my building, it'll be a completely different color. So they're wow. redoing all the windows, like everything. Like it's like it never stops. It just yeah. never stops. Wow, that that that's okay. So they're and they're it's every, storage like, lockers. Screw storage lockers. Everyone needs that. Let's just make more condos. I, I, that's exactly what they're doing, and it's cr- it's driving me mentally insane. And no wonder you've been waking up so early. I've been like, oh my god, Jamie's waking up at yeah, eight thirty no in the choice. morning. Yeah, I have no choice. You're you, you're waking up. I'm waking. I have no choice. I have zero choice in the matter. They just start, and it just doesn't end till like six p.m. 
last week we had dogs and now we just have construction workers. And now it's just construction. It's like Toronto in spring. This is this is like what we, this is the the music of the season. Yeah, we do live very downtown ish. Yes. We do. Yeah. Um so yeah, so we were talking about um before the construction men again are ruining my life. Um <laughs> I'm so dramatic. <laughs> um well, then I'm curious because I, I think this might be like a neat it's sort of intro to scotch because scotch could be so like polarizing for some people. Mm-hmm. Like some people will say, oh, I don't like scotch because I don't like that, that peatiness. Like I don't like that flavor. It's, you know, it's terrible or they love it um, beyond anything or they like, you know, so. So what is like, let's just start with what scotch. What is scotch? Tell us, Mark. Yeah, so Scotch, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how, and I think when we talked about Irish whiskey, we talked about how, you know, different countries have different laws of how to define whiskey. And Scotch, a single malt Scotch is made out of 100% malted barley. That's that's the main rule. And then it has to be aged for at least a couple of years. And then, um, and, and it has to, it doesn't have to have an age statement, but if there is an age statement on a bottle, um, that's the youngest whiskey that can go in that bottle. So, so if it says 12 years, the youngest whiskey has to be at least 12 years old. And then, of course, you can have like 14, 15-year-old whiskey in there. But that that's the minimum standard. Um, being a 100% malted barley means, um, you know, malted barley is a very kind of – I like calling like a very soft grain. It has a very soft, subtle sweetness to it. And the – Scotch is aged in reused oak, unlike bourbon, which is used aged in brand new oak. Typically, well, legally, it has to be aged in brand new oak. So, um, Scotch is, is a very softer drink. It needs to get it needs to be aged a little longer to get those flavors through because you're not getting as much flavor from the wood since it's being used a second, and third time, or more. And yeah, and that and then we have blended Scotch. And blended Scotch is a mixture of malted barley, corn, wheat. It, it's essentially you know, to cut down the cost because of malted barley is more expensive, they'll add other grains to that mixture. Typically not rye, but they can. And there's no reason not to. So I'm obviously a, a bourbon person. Um, and I sort of, there's like a whole different set of rules. And for me, it's so interesting because in Scotland, you have like different regions, um, which to me is like almost like kind of like wine-like where you can mm-hmm. have like different regions have a different sort of um, like flavor signature. What's what's up with that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the a um, lot of those regional flavors uh, came around in uh, 1987. And uh, the there's a company that is now, you may have heard of them, called Diageo. So it's now Diageo. But back then, uh, there was a company called uh, United Distillers, which was eventually purchased by uh, Guinness. And then Guinness eventually uh, merged with uh, a, grand, a company called Grand Metropolitan, and, and they created the company Diageo. So uh, an interesting history here, you know, Diageo owns so many single model scotch companies. They own uh, Johnny Walker, and you know, that 90% of their product goes into Johnny Walker. There's a blended whiskey, blend, blended single sorry, a blended scotch, um, a lot of their product goes into that. So United Distillers was looking at ways of marketing whiskey and making it easier to understand because whiskey, uh, scotch particularly in the 80s, was not doing very well. And what they did is they did, decided to make regional profiles. So they made, you know, uh, you know, they made peated whiskeys and they made sweeter whiskeys and they made more American oak whiskeys and they had a very 
they made uh, six different regions and defined those regions based on the distilleries that they owned. So six different distilleries joined together, created United Distillers, and each one had a different opinion on how those regions really aged. There's no terroir to this. There's no like reason why the whiskey you know, from space side tastes the way it does. But because whiskey started coming back, that really influenced a lot of the distilleries in the type of whiskey that they were making. However, if you go back a few hundred years, almost all Scotch whiskey would have been peated because peat was used as the fuel source. Um, so you know you wouldn't just have Islay whiskeys being peated; you would have all whiskeys uh, would be, or most most Scotches would have been peated. But they moved away from that. They only had the one peated whiskey in that United Distillers hmm. organization. And so peat was used as a fuel source because there was no trees. Is yeah, that, it was. That's what I've heard. Yeah, it was the cheapest. Um, it was the cheapest fuel source they had. Okay. Um, that was it. That was basically it. You would have a family that would cook um, cook dinner or lunch. They would use a peat in the in the in their uh, stove. Oh my gosh! So all their food tasted like peat. Oh man, could you imagine? Like, you would no one... love that. You would have oh. been like right <laughs> in your element. You'd be like, "Hallelujah! This is the best smoky tasting." Like, oh, so wait, when we like, I, I, it, it's just like a, it's, it's one of those things that's that's like. You think about like peat and smoke and how that smell is so like synonymous with like whiskey. Mm-hmm. Like if you smell something that smells like peat, like even now it's sort of like you smell like a campfire and you'll be like, oh, it's so like it just or you'll smell like a, a scotch and be like, oh, it's like a it's so smoky and campfirey and like. Then it all just starts like coming together and all of a sudden everything tastes like or smells like whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's amazing that it's peat, that smokiness survives that long. Yeah. Uh, because it goes through fermentation and then it gets uh, like, so first it gets dried, then it gets fermented and the peat sticks around. And then, I mean, it goes through distillation and boom, it's still around. So yeah, it's an amazing, uh, it's amazing that it's that, that flavor profile sticks around for so long. And now in today's whiskey world, uh, most distillers will just order barley and they'll be like we want this you know 55 parts per uh, per million uh peated or 150 parts or Whoa. or 25 and they really just dictate this is how much peat you have because in the most in the old romantic days you literally had when that that fire that they used to dry the barley that was all peat today it's, it's not it's the cheapest fuel source now right um but because peat's no longer the cheapest fuel source but they'll smoke that barley using smokers just like they would in a traditional uh barbecue so essentially so the purpose now of like they're not using the peat to and like the to the smoke i guess to and heat from it to stop the malting process anymore that's done completely separately and peat is sort of added as like a um ingredient now yeah, it's it's used. It's um, they still uh, so you typically a lot of the big distilleries don't do their own uh, malting process, and mm-hmm. so they will get the uh, malted barley already from a distributor, but that distributor will smoke it um, during that drying process. So uh-huh. they the so that chamber where it's drying will still have the smokiness just like it did in the old days, but instead of using peat to as a heat source, they will use peat as a way of um, as a smoker in the smoker to smoke those uh, that barley. Oh, I get it. Okay, okay. So when you talk about malting barley, what does that mean specifically? 
So malting barley is the, um, and it's funny too because I mean, uh, bur- almost all whiskey has. Um, malted barley. Malty barley, and that's because of the enzymes. Malted barley has good enzymes that helps along with fermentation. And so uh, malt is really, uh, you take grains and you soak them in water to start the germination process. So that, that means the grains are st- taking the starches and turning, converting the starches into sugars. So fermentation uh, takes sugars and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and converts that to alcohol and uh, carbon dioxide. So now you have a process by which uh, those that that, germ- that that germinating that germinating process stop, happens, um, but you don't want it to go full on. You don't want it to you don't want it to sprout like you know leaves and stuff. So you essentially need to stop that malting process at a certain point, and that's when you dry it. So the you use water, you soak it in water to start the malting process. The seeds will gener- naturally convert the starches to sugars, but then at a certain point you want to stop that process because now you've got um, a sugar based. Grain, grain with lots of sugars that you can use during fermentation. See, it, that was a very good explanation because now I just get it. Like I always knew that like, I always knew malting was starting that process and then abruptly ending it. Mm-hmm. But maybe I just never finished like the chapter that I was supposed to read on it. <laughs> I don't know why. It's, it, it's funny because sometimes, I don't know if other people get this, but sometimes I'll get something in my head for like a good month and mm-hmm. then if you ask me a month later like what does malting mean I'll be like um well I think it means and I'll sort of like try to I don't know I for some reason it's just one of these things there's so much to know about whiskey that it's sometimes like it's like one new thing we'll just push another old thing out yeah, no, I, I'm reading this book, uh, La- The Last Policeman. Uh, it's like a trilogy. And it's a bit of, I don't usually read mystery books. And I'm, I find I'm just always lost. I'm like, wait, who is this character again? I, I mean, I, I read about this like five days ago, but it's, it's gone. It's, it's just gone. I don't know what else. To, you know. I know. I, 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 take it on the, I take it on the credibility of the author that he's telling me something I should have known. <laughs> yes, I know. It's true. I know. I know exactly what you're talking That's how I honestly just felt right now. I was like... Oh, I knew this, but it felt like I didn't know it, but I did know it. It's just very strange. I feel like I've been like concentrating so much on bourbon lately mm-hmm. that uh, when I'm not like sitting right in front of a book about maybe scotch, like if it's bourbon specific, then I'm sort of, I lose those little like pieces that I should probably know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, bourbon, the, the, the forward flavor profile, that's what's, you know, quote unquote in right now. That's what's really, really um, popular and very much appreciated. I mean, I think I'm drinking more bourbon now than, than uh, ever before uh, because there's so many great choices and less scotch. So there you go. I mean, I think it's that's that's today's world, like uh, the um, subtle complexities that you will typically find in single malt scotch isn't really what's, you know, the in push today um but i always go back to single malt scotch for me because it does take me to a like a uh slower paced you know place mm. it's it's a little it maybe slow is not the right example but it's just like it makes me appreciate these other elements of the whiskey that i'm drinking um that makes me think about it more that makes me like settle down into a different place with whiskey so jamie um what are you because we we always do the show we typically have one drink each so what are you drinking today i'm drinking a talisker 10 
awesome. the only bottle of scotch I have in my collection. You have an amazing bourbon collection, and yes. your scotch collection's like, yeah. One single lone bottle, like, crying over in the corner. You know, it's so funny, because when there are a bunch of bottles that I really want to buy, actually, of, of scotch, um, I just... There's a couple in my mind that I'd really like to own, but I just can't seem to. It's this is some pricey stuff, and mm-hmm. for some reason I'm more. I would be more apt to purchase a bottle of bourbon for that price than maybe it's just because I don't know Scotch as well, and so I I know what I like, but I'm afraid of you know what if I miss out on uh you know this hundred dollar bottle of bourbon. Because I just yeah. bought a bottle of scotch, and I'm not 100% sure about this bottle of scotch, but I'm going to try it, and that's, that's, that's hard for me. So I, I'm excited to do this show and to hear a little bit more about scotch. And then I have to get into the habit of actually going out to the bars and trying a little bit of it, because that's really the yeah. only way to do it. Like, there's no sample sizes here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not. Yeah, you know, I... It's true. I mean, single malt scotch, it's um, at the lower price points. Um, you can get a really delicious bourbon for that same price. And um, and I think, you know, in the U.S., in the United States, we are seeing scotch prices be a little bit more reasonable. I mean, in the U.S., you can get Laphroaig 18 for around $80. Uh, what a great price for a really delicious scotch. It's very smoky. It's complex. It has all these amazing elements. Every time I drink it, it makes me think of something slightly different, but it gives it lets me dive really deep into that whiskey. And it's $80. I mean, that that's great. And I think a single malt scotch does compete at certain points, but it is a lot harder to get there um, because you don't know necessarily what you like. Um, there are different styles of single malt scotch. We, we mentioned peated, unpeated, uh, but also uh, some scotch is primarily aged in... Uh, previously used bourbon barrels and those uh, scotches typically tend to have more vanilla spice notes and then you have scotch that's aged primarily in European oak and European oak uh, previously used European oak tends to have very like sweet cherry notes completely different types of whiskey Um, flavor wise so so different and you know if you're just getting started it's really hard to pick what do you like and i always say um you know get something that's american oaked and belvini is a great example most of belvini's products are american oaked um get something that's sherry oaked and that's you know you get your glenfarcus or glenfiddich um or your macallans which are primarily european oaked and then get something peated your talisker tens your highland parks uh beaumars a little less um less peated but get something in that element and go to a restaurant and see what you like whether you like the sweeter stuff whether you like the um spicier stuff whether you like the peated stuff yeah and and um i we sort of went off track a little bit here because i got chit-chatting as usual but we, we didn't find out what you were drinking right now yeah so i am drinking i'm drinking a pretty peated peated super peated drink it's the uh, it's from Brooklady. It's the Octomore 6.1 uh, release. It's a very young scotch. It's uh, five years. It's bottled at 57% alcohol. Um, it's one of the peatiest scotches in the world. It's super peated. After a certain point, I don't even think you can, like, you know, after a certain point, I don't think you can tell anymore. It's just, it's just ridiculously peated. But it's got a lot of flavor, and the um, it's got a high alcohol content, which in this whiskey works really well because it just 
it punches through all that peat and you're gonna get a lot of flavor a lot of kind of like iodine flavors um you know like you get the citrusiness to it it's a really nice drink um i've had the uh, original octomore uh back in my first trip to scotland and i uh, really just thought it was a great brand idea it's a very young whiskey but a very delicious whiskey i think that's great i think it's you know it's a distillery that's really pushing the envelope there yeah, I know their packaging is really interesting. Um, I've had I, at the whiskey show at Whiskey Live that we went to. I, I tried a couple of the Brooklady stuff, um, and they they do not look. Their packaging does not look like any other uh, single malt packaging that I've seen. So I like that. Yeah, you know, it's the few examples of a distillery that both has really great well thought out marketing and then also really great product behind it um the uh octomore is this beautiful black bottle um the other whiskey i drew out of the cabinet was the uh was the brooklady black arts bottle which you know is it's almost too much it's a very uh voodoo ish but this is the black art 1989 release uh age 21 years uh 2.2 edition um super thick and luscious and um just a beautiful drink um Brooklady does a really good job both on the marketing side and on the packaging side awesome yeah I, this is again because this is my only scotch i'm actually a fan of it because it's got a bit of peat which is nice if you can believe that construction is not coming from inside my building that's outside <laughs> it's awful awful sorry everybody um yeah, this is, I, I'm a big fan. I I am a novice scotch drinker, and so for me, so much of the flavor is that peat. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it hard to get out of the peat a little bit. Um, so I think that, you know, in order to sort of, I guess I just need to drink more scotch, is I guess yeah. what I- <laughs> Well, I mean, I think you need to drink more scotch, and, and um, you know, you, you would you would hate something like a Glenlivet 12, uh, for example. Like a Glenlivet 12 has just a very straightforward flavor profile. It's just very like, you know, it just hits a note and then that's it. And for a bourbon drinker that, you know, you would just be like, wow, this is just... Where's the flavor? <laughs> where, where's the flavor? What's going on? Um, you know, so it, it's tough. And I, we found, I think, uh, Jamie, primarily through your drinking, I realized, you know what? Peat and bourbon do go really well together. Just like barbecue and bourbon go really well. Smoked barbecue and bourbon, great combination. If you like your bourbon and you like smoky barbecue, you may like uh, smoky scotch. It's a pretty good chance you will. I agree with that statement. I do like the smoky scotch and I do like smoky cocktails and that sort of, um, I just like that flavor profile. Um, I find that with scotch, um, I, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the, the sort of balance of flavors is is very different than a bourbon, which is what I always compare it to because that's just where I come from. Um, but for for like you, like single malt scotch is your first love. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you actually find yourself comparing like, is it just like apples to oranges to compare? a scotch to a bourbon is there any way we can do it or do we is it best if we just stick scotch to scotch to bourbon to bourbon like it's hard for me to have a scotch and not say where's that where's that extra you know middle flavor that I really like like I sort of it's yeah I can't for some reason I have a hard time getting past how how uh, I, I just keep comparing the two which I probably shouldn't yeah, it, it really is. It's a it's a different drink, um, but 
your preferences will vary. It's just I think it's very similar to liking red or white wine, and um, you know you may in wine I totally get. It. I'm, I'm very like like a very dry red wine, and I don't drink so much wine that I get to experience other wines as often. But I don't like the very acidic kind of green apple. Uh, white wines, the Rieslings. I, I'll drink them occasionally, but it's not something that I really look forward to having. And with scotch, it's the same thing. Scotch isn't going to give you a lot of those uh, forward flavors, especially not in that cheaper range. So once you get into the older scotches that are you know over $100, um, yeah, you will get a lot of flavor. But I mean, at that point, what you're primarily looking for, that texture and that profile and that experience, you can get for a lot less in bourbons. And um, that's that's true. That's definitely reality. It's one of the reasons why I think bourbon's you know taking so much limelight away from uh, single malt scotch in competitions and uh, in sales as well and growth. Yeah, it seems to me like you like what you just said, and that's a huge. That has to be a huge conundrum. And it's it's you know you always sort of hope that it doesn't sort of happen to bourbon. Is that you get to a point where you are are only getting quality stuff at a certain in like a certain price range or it's you know it's seen to be that if you buy a 60 dollar scotch it's not like what is an expensive scotch actually that's maybe this is where i should start because i have a lot of thoughts about this but (laughs) oh yeah sure it's like so so okay so i know i know it's not all about price because that's you know whatever you can find a nice bottle of you know whatever it just depends on your palate but Mm -hmm. generally speaking what would one pay for a nice bottle maybe something nicer than a a go-to bottle something that's like whatever my version or whatever you know the scotch version of my sort of taylor barrel proof would be something to open on a nice night yeah, so I think the you're looking at about you know sixty to seventy dollars US for a, a nice bottle of scotch. Um, you're looking at kind of maybe your uh, you know Belvini fourteen. Um, you're looking at your uh, like older Rothroigs. You're looking at uh, Glen Farkas is a fifteen year old, a very nice uh, European forward whiskey. Um, European oak whiskey. You're looking at about that that price range um because a lot of the you know a lot of the cheaper uh single malt scotches don't give you that range of flavor um there are exceptions but like you know aaron uh distillery does a really great job with younger whiskeys uh glenn farkas does a great job um you know uh glenn livid had an adaro cast 16 year old whiskey which was reasonably priced in cast strength and the 16 year old and uh, 16 years aged, and, uh, really delicious whiskey. Sadly, they don't make it anymore. Uh, but there's a lot of really great whiskeys out there, single malt scotches that have had a lower price point. But for the most part, yeah, you're looking about seventy dollars US, I would say. Okay, so that's not that's not so out of control. I mean, I guess when yeah, I don't know. I'm just sort of like my head sort of like spinning about you know where where scotches sort of come from and where maybe bourbon is going. And I think there's a lot of people who are nervous about bourbon and we don't have to keep going back to bourbon. I just always do because it's my sort of point of reference, but worried about, um, you know, this sort of these 
incremental increases in price um, and the expectation of maybe it, you know, all of a sudden you're, it's going to be 10 years down the road and you can't find a good bourbon for $30 anymore, or $40 anymore. And, and you have to spend at least $70 to get something sort of palatable. I don't know. People seem to be worried about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I think if you really wanted to find, um, if you wanted to have a bourbon, uh, bourbon, if you wanted to have a scotch in your cabinet, that's a very kind of traditional single malt scotch. Um, Dalwini, 15-year-old, uh, is a good example of a very, you know, American oaked, primarily single malt scotch that has a lot of barley notes that's, you know, in that cheaper range of whiskey. Um, and it just, for me, what I miss about bourbons and how I separated them out is the grain. And I think if I can taste that malted barley, I'm happy. If I can get the flavor profile from that malted barley, I'm I'm very happy with that. And uh, whiskeys like Dalwini do that. They give you just your, your malted barley flavor. Um, and it's a nice, it's a different kind of sweetness. And it's a, it's definitely a step in a different direction. It's definitely the, you know, white wine versus red wine of the whiskey world. Um, but you do get an appreciation for it over time. Uh, and that, you know, and I think as, and it, it does seem like, you know, what, what we drink is very cyclical. Um, so it does seem like those kind of whiskeys are getting out of, fla- out of favor. Um, they're not mixed as much in cocktails, uh, you know, so you've got this different experience right now where, where people are going to, but I think it's important. I think it's important to have your single malt scotch and have and enjoy something a little different that, takes you on a on a slightly different journey i agree i'm really enjoying this one actually i i always think yes i should just go for it and i know a couple different scotches that i've sort of wanted to add to my collection the aberlauer i think it's called the abunda abunda yeah 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 oh that's a great one too yeah i really Mm -hmm. like that one it's a little higher in alcohol which is nice um i i really like that one but having something you know sort of standard would be now i'm a i like oban that's a good one too yeah yeah you know like just sort of those one-offs that you know somebody shares a sip you know with you one night at the bar and then you sort of discover it that way has sort of been the way that i discovered it a little bit um which is always a good thing when people share their whiskey with you (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. I try to share my whiskey with other people because you never know, right? Are you going to give them something that's going to take them on a on a completely different sort of like path? That's what happened to me. Somebody introduced me to whiskey, and then all of a sudden it was like boom. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think absolutely. I mean, and there, and there really are a lot of more affordable. I mean, there's the uh, for me, uh, my one of my favorite Glenfiddich is the Glenfiddich uh, Distillery. Uh, edition, which is bottled at uh, just over 50% alcohol. Now, here's a drink that hasn't been watered down very much. Nice. It's got a lot of flavor. I mean, my, my only biggest complaint with like Glenfiddich 12 is it's a, for me, it's a little too sweet um, and not so much character. We've, you know, previous shows, we've tasted the 14, which has a little bit more, which has, which has a lot more character. Uh, and the 15 uh, Distillers Edition is just boom. It's part, bottled at higher alcohol content and it just comes at you with a lot of great flavors. And I, you know, like I appreciate that. I can't... Um, I can't find there's no you know bourbon that will be bottled at 51% where um, the trick to that is simply aging it longer and having the you know forward flavors take over having a scotch bottled at 50%. Now there's a different science there because you're really going for these very subtle flavors that they need to stand out. So then 
let me ask you this. What, what is the sweet spot for scotch? What's the, what's the sweet spot in terms of aging? Like we know that bourbons generally, you know, between 10 and sort of 12 years is a really nicely aged bourbon. Is that the same for scotch? No, so scotch is interesting. The there is a lot more variation in scotch. Um, so if you look at the way scotch is primarily aged in reused oak, so what they do is they take barrels from from Spain or from the U.S. They break these barrels down and they ship them over to Scotland and they rebuild the barrels. And those barrels already have a history. You know, they made bourbon, they made Maker's Mark, they might have made you know Jim Beam. You don't know what the I mean the distillery knows, but as a drinker you don't know what that history is. They might have made you know, a very special kind of sherry. They might have been making sherry that eventually just gets used to make vinegar. Like, you don't know, there's a certain history behind those barrels. And because they've been built, used to age another product, broken down and rebuilt, um, there's this extra character. So in bourbon, we talk about where that barrel is stored. And that's important because in, in bourbon, uh, every barrel is freshly new and made identical. And it has an identical history. It's you know where where the where the wood came from is important, but it's you know that prime the predominant flavors are there already. With single malt scotch, you're working with the product that's already been used, so now you're reusing those barrels to add additional flavor to your scotch, and that's why it gets really tough to say what what's the ideal point because um, generally the these barrels have enough character themselves that some barrels will. You know, after 12 years, that that's the best whiskey they're ever going to make. They're already they're they're about about to degrade. Uh, whereas you have other barrels that can last 30, 40 years and still maintain a good whiskey. And of course, in Scotland, you could also take uh, whiskey from one barrel and just pour it into another barrel and keep aging it. So that's okay. Um, so you really have a lot of these characters that come up from a very like carefully, meticulously grown process and. Unlike in bourbon, where they can kind of tell how the bourbon's going to taste based on where it's located in the warehouse, in scotch, they really can't. They can't go by that. They need to do samplings. They need to constantly monitor those barrels and what that whiskey is turning out to be. And they'll pick a point. They're like, you know what? This barrel, this is it. This is like it's reaching a high point. It's got enough flavor. It's going to just go downwards from here. It needs to be bottled. And it might be blended with something else. It might be, you know, it might be used for several different products, but it needs to go. That's really interesting, actually. I mean, you for, I, again, my point of reference is the bourbon world, but um, it's kind of exciting to have, like, you know, the dip finishing in different casks and, and you know, sort of, there's a lot more, um, like, sort of, like, <laughs> surprise, like, here's a really yeah. neat, like, sort of, you know, cherry flavor or, um, which I think is really appealing. Um, because as much as I love bourbon, which is like a million times, like I, I think that, um, you know, it's nice to have that sort of thing where you can play with it a little bit and, and be a little more playful and see, you know, what, what comes up, you know, you, you throw it in this, um, you know, like sherry cask for a couple of years and then we'll put it in this ex bourbon cask for a couple of years and see what happens that's that's kind of appealing and kind of fun and and I mean as I think about it now more it must make for a slightly more frustrating experience for maybe scotch buyers because mm-hmm. you you have a lot of 
obviously you've got like a lot of different options but secondly if what if they discontinue like your favorite flavor combo yeah that would be upsetting if you like if you love something and they're like oh we're just not making that anymore because we have so many other things we want to experiment with that we you know we're not doing it for four years this way and four years that way and you know we're not doing that thing anymore but we're going to do this other new thing and you're kind of like but that was my thing Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, um, in, in Scotch whiskey, uh, those high prices are, are there for a reason. And one of those reasons is, you know, getting your Glenfiddich 12 to taste the same year after year is a lot harder. It, it absolutely is. Um, and then also you have these rare releases and, you know, um, and, and that, that's, that's pretty common. So you'll have, you know, you'll have your standard kind of 12, 15, 18, you know, 25, 20-year-old 20 whiskey. But then you're going to have your, you know, those whiskeys, especially in those higher age ranges, are going to start changing in flavor year after year because it matters depending on what barrels they have, uh, how they're made. Um, and there's this little, there's a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more magic in between the seams because you might get whiskeys that, you know, you might get single malt scotch that shouldn't make sense, but it does. Um, you'll have, you know, interesting releases that just the barrel happen to be perfect for that grain and that temperament and the seasons, and it gives you something else. And, you know, that that's interesting. And there's, there's, there's examples of whiskey makers just being like, this shouldn't make any sense, but it but, does, and it's delicious. Yeah. Well, then here's another question for you. What would you prefer, what would you rather be living in Scotland working at a distillery there and then dealing with all the rain but having <laughs> fun with a whiskey or would you rather work in Kentucky with like four seasons uh, but stuck in you know the same old routine I, I don't know I feel like <laughs> I don't know it's um, a hard question. <laughs> well, it is because a lot of, at least in Kentucky, if you work for a distillery, you've got like Lexington or Louisville nearby where you can, you know, go out and, and have a good time. Um, you know, some of these distilleries in in Scotland are located in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally, there's, uh, you know. I would love that. I'd be like, I'd put the hat on and i put like the plaids on and I would just like, it'd be just me and my sheep walking to the distillery in the morning. Oh. Nobody doing construction. <laughs> Oh man! Nobody's I, I, out late at night bugging me. <laughs> oh, you know, there, there, there's distilleries up until recently you couldn't even get to by car. Like, wow, it's... wow! What did you think? Helicopter in? That's like no, the no, Jurassic not... Park of like like distilleries. Like... No, no, no! You just take a boat. You take a boat. It was uh, you have to go by boat. <laughs> I, I feel like I've got all these details in the books. And I'm just like I can't remember which is which anymore because it's I like. Know. It's like there's so many distilleries that I researched for the book and talked to people about them. But, but yeah, there's there's distilleries located in the middle of, like, nowhere. And you just literally – there's a distillery and it's it's inscarped by – like, there's just mountains and hills around it. And the distillery can't grow anymore because it's like it and then there's, like, a fabric shop and then there's the rest of the city. And that's it. It yeah. cannot expand anymore. So funny. So funny. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's a very different, uh, like – lifestyle it's a it's a very different drink it's a very different it's funny they're all whiskey they're all under that same umbrella but i mean they're they're it's funny when i think about this is so bad because it could totally be um stereotyping and i don't want to do that but Uh when i think of like scotch drinkers i think of like gentlemen 
in a smoking parlor, <laughs> you know, that whole thing. And then now I think of bourbon drinkers as <laughs> like downtown hipsters. I guess right. maybe because that's who comes to my bourbon club. <laughs> right. They're all like downtown, like urban people. It used to be that when I thought of bourbon, I thought of westerns. I thought yeah. of western movies, like that, you know, bottle on the bar, um, you know, with no label on it, and then just like a cowboy who's like, you know, he's seen some things. And he's just pouring <laughs> shot, and he's just drinking the sh- like shots after shots. That's always my. But then I got into it, and I saw that it wasn't quite that. So maybe now, if I, you know, I'll offer a. I'll, we should do a scotch. We should do a scotch tasting for my my whiskey club, and I'm sure the hipsters will love it just as much as they love. Oh yeah, no, bourbon. we should definitely do it. We should definitely take your take your bourbon club and just do like we're just gonna talk scotch, nothing but yeah, scotch, nothing but scotch. I think that's a great idea. Uh, what happens when you ask for a single malt and someone gives you Johnny Walker? Has you that ever happened re- before? Um, no, I I I never. You're very I don't specific. Think, yeah, I'm, I'm very specific. But I, Johnny Walker Black is great. I think I think that's a really uh, really good whiskey. Um, um, not a big fan of the red. I have to say, uh, the red label might be a little bit. Um, you know, it's a little rough. It's a little rough around the edges, not in a good way. Um, but I really like black. Uh, I think I like black better than uh, any of the other ones for, for more money um, because black um, isn't settled down. It's a younger whiskey. It's still got that kind of youthful excitement to it um, as opposed to uh, some of the older Johnny Walkers are, are smooth. They definitely they hit that point, and, you know, I've said this before, there's nothing interesting about smooth whiskey. So the smoother that whiskey I gets... I agree the less interesting it's going to get. So black isn't too smooth. It's not, you know, it's not the kind of, you know, red, Johnny Walker red sort of roughness. Uh, it's just it's just pleasant to drink and has character, and I, and I quite like uh, Johnny Walker black. I actually try to stay away from that, that word, smooth, as much as I can when I'm doing a tasting. Yeah, hate it, hate it. I, you uh, know, it really smooth defined um, so much of what scotch is today because... Uh, you know, the reason we started aging, you know, scotch in, in barrels is to make it smoother because, man, out of the still, it's rough, right? Uh, bur- bourbon before it's bourbon is rough out of the still. Scotch out of the still before it's scotch, before it's been aged is rough. It's a rough drink. And so the whole idea was to get make it smoother, to have the wood notes, uh, to have the uh, flavors from the oak um, mellow out the drink, which is great. But, yeah, you know. But on the other hand, I've had seven-year-old whiskeys that uh, from Scotland that have, even though they've been seven years old, they've still got that youthful, vibrant nature to them. So you never know. You never know. And that's the whole idea behind these barrels. Uh, sometimes they keep around you know, a barrel just because it's aging so well, and they'll save it for a special release. So you'll have like the Belvini 50. I think it sells for something like $50,000 a barrel. Uh, a bottle, rather. But it's like one barrel bottled, and um, it's it's ridiculously delicious and that barrel made it right wow that's really expensive that's yeah Yeah. hey if you were gonna buy okay so if you were super rich and you had the choice to bring a barrel back from a distillery in scotland what distillery would you go buy your barrel from ah that is a great question thanks uh (laughs) I, you know, I think, um, so that's a really great question. And I feel like I'm, I'm almost like, I, I, a lot of distilleries in Scotland um, have 
sell barrels, but it's becoming rarer and rarer. Um, but from what I understand, Springbank has an amazing, amazing collection of older barrels. But I think my favorite distillery overall that's somewhat available would be uh, Brooklady. I don't know if Brooklady sells barrels, but I would say I would go with something Brooklady-ish in that in that area because um, I, I just think they they have a good program there to produce great whiskey. Uh, but the thing is about a single barrel scotch is you're not buying it necessarily because of that flavor. You're buying it from a very historical aspect. So I would like to say, you know, here's Brooklady from like the 80s and this is what they were making. Uh, because the blending process in scotch is so important. Um, you don't have a lot of single barrels. In fact, you know, I mean, the price points are the same, right? In bourbon, you have... Regular stuff, small batch, and single barrel. And single barrels are usually the most expensive. But they also taste very similar. In scotch, you do have you know smaller and smaller batches as you go up the, the H chain. But then your single barrel ones have the issue of like they're not being complemented by any other flavors. They're just that one flavor from that one barrel. And that's pretty rare. And that's super rare. And it has to be a really good barrel uh, of whiskey. And it's tough to, you know, it, it's tough to say which one's got you know which one's gonna be the good one so does that mean that the rock stars of whiskey making in scotland are actually the master blenders and not the distillers yeah that's that's an absolute good way of looking at it absolutely agreed agreed cool. yeah yeah the master blenders do a great great job and their their whole goal is to um create a f- product from different types of barrels um i think my favorite experience about this is when I did a tour through Belvinie and they had me test uh, taste a ton 1401 and we we deconstructed that whiskey so it was a complex it was nine different barrels of whiskey and they sh- let us taste all nine different barrels of whiskey and how you know each of those samples of each of those individual barrel samples alone most of them wouldn't have made a very good single malt scotch there were a few that were really delicious and would have gladly had them on their own uh, but some of them were just okay. Uh, one of them was not even scotch. It was, you know, like 39% alcohol. Wouldn't have even legally been called scotch. It was an older American oak barrel. Um, and I really got to appreciate these, the, this blending of American oak, which gives you vanilla and spiciness, and European oak, which gives you those sweeter, thicker, richer flavors. And master blenders really take these different flavor combinations that are unique within the barrels and bring together that single malt scotch that you're enjoying. So like a Talisker 10 is, you know, produced very often, you know, produced day to day and its entire goal is to taste the same every day. And then your special releases, and these are really expensive. I mean, the one thing is single malt scotch special releases are always, you know, in that two, $300 range. Those are the ones where it's the master blender picks out 10 or 20 barrels. And he's like, these are the ones I want to blend together for the final product. Wow. And that's it. Right. Wow. That sounds really hard. It is, and they're also aged a lot longer because they're reused oak and because of the weather, right? So, you know, like, I mean, you get the same thing in Kentucky if you're, if you're drinking stag, right? Your stag is a blend of certain barrels that go after that profile. And that's why it's expensive and it's a rare release. But your Knob Creek and your Bookers are a lot easier to pick out. Yeah. But they're well, also cheaper. Right, right, Exactly. Now, do you think the uh, naming of distilleries is a drawback? So if you like, uh, you know, if you, you order something that's a little less known. So Talisker is easy to pronounce. Glenfiddich is relatively 
easy to pronounce, but you got to hear Glengroch and your, you know, your other ones that you're really, I, I barely can ever pronounce properly. Do you think that's a drawback in Scotch? Do you find it's that that could be a challenge? Yes. A hundred percent. Of course. There's probably, yes, a hundred, yes. I, I, I wouldn't order something I couldn't pronounce. So you're like, I can order bullet because I know it's bullet. I know how to pronounce bullet. It's straightforward. Um, Blanton's. Got it. Yeah. I can pronounce it. I can. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think that, I mean, if you're, well, I mean, okay, maybe if I felt as confident as I do now with whiskey, I could afford to fumble up a name or I could ask, simply ask the bartender, "Um, how do I pronounce this one? But if I wasn't as comfortable as I am with whiskey, if I was sort of like I was wandering in maybe just to the shallow end, I wouldn't order something that would give me away as a novice. But so I think that I I think that now I can comfortably go in and order something that I couldn't pronounce. But I think that if you asked me this question a year ago, I would say uh, I would rather just have a sip of someone else's if they ordered it. Right, right. Yeah. But I, I do think that sometimes it's a bit of a, um, it can be a bit of a nerve-wracking experience. It's the same with, um, you know, even ordering beers. Some some beers, German beers especially, some of them are a little hard to pronounce. Even when you first get into wine and you're really young and, you know, you want a, you want a Syrah and you're <laughs> like, you call it like a Syrah or something and you just like fumble through it and then you just are humiliated beyond belief because you've added yourself as a novice. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm older now and because I know my whiskey that I just don't care as much. But oh, I sure, can, sure. I, I, I like can, that example. Yeah, I can see it as something that's intimidating. So I would stick to the ones I could pronounce at the beginning for sure. My, my favorite uh, my favorite wine one is the uh, Meritage. It's not a Meritage. It's a Meritage or... Yeah, meritage because it's uh, it's an English word. It's not like Merlot or Syrah where it's a French word. It's Stop just a, it. Yeah, I know. I know. If you call it a mara- uh, uh, <laughs> meritage, it's, it, it's not a meritage. <gasps> it's not a French word. It's actually an English word. It's a marriage of different blends and it's meritage. Oh my gosh, I've been saying oh. it wrong the whole time. Oh, see, see, see. There you go. The whole see? time. The Every whole single time. time. Yeah. Well, yeah. I. You know. But but wine people so I mean you know wine people will say like you know I, I hear like wine experts like people that's wine ambassadors call it a meritage as well they're like oh the meritage right like, but no no not a French word it's an English word it's meritage it's not as sexy sounding but I think meritage does sound sexier so there it, you go it does I think I think we can just just you know claim it as a meritage and and walk away from it because man <laughs> I. It's so devastating when you learn something you've been saying wrong the whole time. It's just, it's just, you question your whole life. You do, you do. (laughs) What do I even know if I didn't even, I couldn't even pronounce the name of a wine properly. Oh, you know, I I found that uh, distillery that's, um, it was was up until recently was isolated completely and it's called Old Pultney. I've heard of Old Pultney. I actually went to an Old Pultney tasting. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, to be fair. Okay. I, I briefly considered having pronunciations um, in the book for all the distilleries I mentioned uh, that are not not obvious. And I, I really wanted to do that. I wanted, I wanted to. And then I, I realized that, you know, even among, like, Scotch people, the pronunciations aren't 100% clear. And I'm just like, oh, 
I don't know. Go on YouTube and Google the name and YouTube will tell you. Because I, I, I got up to like, you know, like 70% of the way through the distilleries. And then I'm like, I, nobody can agree on how to pronounce this name. No, nobody can. So I'm just like, screw it. This is just, it's not a science. I don't want to include it in the just book. pick one and go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think the of all of the ones that I know, maybe um, like Brooklady is the one that it really can make people like take a second glance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, it can be a tongue twister, that one. Hey, well, you pronounced Oban correctly. I believe that I was did. the right okay, way to say good. Yeah. I mm-hmm. Again, you, I hesitated, though, because I was like, are you going to say this wrong? Are you going to just screw this right up, James? No. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that is one thing, one small hurdle for, you know, people opening up to scotch is not being able to ask for it properly. Scotch has been going through that whole, uh, definitely has been a big, big thing with the noise statement, uh, whiskeys becoming, you know, that's a big deal with scotch. That's a huge deal. You have products that are coming in that are are costing more than the standard 10 or 12 year old whiskeys that don't have an A statement. Um, And yeah, it's, it's been creating a lot of, it continues to create a lot of issues. There was a, the Diageo, and I and I don't know, like this is one of those things where I'm like, wow, I can't believe he actually said that. But the um, Diageo's uh, brand ambassador Nick Morgan, um, when he was asked about Noe statement whiskeys, literally said, um, "Sadly, I think a lot of the more uh, intemperate." I always hate reading other people's quotes. Sadly, I think a lot of the more intemperate and ill-informed views seem to come from people who have been in a category for a short amount of time with not much understanding of how whis- how the whiskey industry works. And really what he's saying there is, hey, eight statements weren't around until about the 70s and 80s. Not really. They weren't really there in the 70s and 80s. And I'm like, and yeah, you know, you've been drinking whiskey for 50 years and you think, wow, I like eight statements. But you know what? Go back 100 years. There are no eight statements. We're really going back to how whiskey was traditionally done. And um, anyway, of course, he made everybody mad because oh, I was going to say, how do people <laughs> did the people appreciate that? I think he called every blogger and whiskey critic and author of any whiskey book in recent times an idiot. I believe that that is that is that is not a direct translation, but that would be my interpretation of of what he was saying. And I think that's unfair. I think, you know, we we do know we 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 know that whiskey you know, but whiskey used to also be aged in just European oak, and whiskey used to do a lot of other things in Scotland that it doesn't do today. Uh, it's evolved, it's changed, it's grown up, it's done different things differently, and um, eight statements were a big part of that, were a big part of saying, hey, you know, you can have your bourbon, but this this single malt scotch has been aged for 12 years. How long has your bourbon been aged for? Right? It was a big part of the selling point, and they took it away. They're taking it away, not fully taking it away, but they're removing that quality assurance that quality control um but you always feel sort of like it's a bit of a a guideline in terms of price um and sort of how you feel about well i guess i guess it comes down to price like yeah you know i i've had some really great i've had a fantastic two-year rye um, I've had a fantastic 21 year rye. Um, but, uh, I, I'll be honest. If somebody tried to make me pay as much for the two year rye as I did for the 21 year old rye, I might have something to say about that. I don't care how delicious the two year rye is. <laughs> I might still bristle a little bit when I find out that, you know, well, it's a great whiskey. Yes. But, 
knowing what I know about, you know, how much you lose it with, for the angel share and what it means to age something and keep something for 21 years and to choose that specific, you know, whiskey, I might be a little off put. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be speaking of two year rye, I really do regret not getting the Willits. I mean, you should have got the two. It's such a good two year rye. I love that rye. Oh. I love that rye. So, I mean, it will be there. Kentucky, I have regrets. I have regrets. I know. I, I know. Honestly, you really, there's nothing. I was like, you didn't go to Willet. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's the thing. I, I, all my complaining last time, I'm like, oh, but I could have gotten to Willet two-year-old, and I would have been very happy with you that. You've been Damn very it. happy. They've got some, I mean, anything from Willet, really. Like, they've got some really cool stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's sort of. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. So uh, the big thing with scotch is that the, you know, I, I talked about how scotch typically ages everything in previously used oak. And the more times they reuse these barrels, the less flavor you get. So the older, you know, the older the whiskey needs to be aged to get the flavors. But, you know, a first fill American oak, and in Scotland, a first fill barrel is really the second time it's been used because it gets, it's used, it used to make bourbon or sherry. Then it comes to Scotland and it becomes a first fill barrel. And they do char the insides repeatedly to, to bring out more flavor from those barrels. But the big difference between, let's say, uh, Highland Park 12 and 18, um, their flavor profile is very similar. It's, you know, they're going for a very similar profile, just one's older. But that 18-year-old will have more first fill barrels. So we'll have, not only it's been aged another six years over the 12, but it's been aged in first and second fill barrels more so than that 12 year old, which might've been aged more in three to four year old barrels. So they already had this, you know, there's always this value statement already said, Highland Park 18 isn't a better whiskey than a 12 just because it's been aged for six years. It has more flavor because it's been aged for six years more and also more in first filled barrels. And this complexity is really like lost in the argument. I feel like it, not a lot of people talk about this. This is a, it's lost in the argument because it gets, it takes the argument too deep and it takes it to the point where you're like, oh, so what? 18 year old whiskey wasn't all the same. Because theoretically, you can make a, you know, fifth filled 18 year old scotch and be like, I don't know, these were like old barrels with a lot of history and whatever, but they were aged for 18 years. I've done my job, right? That's not what an 18 year old scotch is. An 18 year old scotch is, age longer with better quality barrels. So theoretically, you can have a younger whiskey that's primarily first fill or second fill barrels, and that's where the focus is, and that's where all the flavor comes from. But I don't, in what I'm tasting in a lot of these noise statement whiskeys, that's not what I'm tasting. I'm not tasting very kind of risky, uh, interesting whiskeys. I'm tasting whiskeys that are made in barrels that have been reused often that have been aged a minimum amount of time that have been watered down to the point where the flavor, you know, the flavor doesn't matter as much. And they just kind of give you a standard profile. And I think that's the problem. I think, and then because none of this is, and this is true for all the whiskey industries, none of this is demonstrated. You know, they don't tell you first fill, second fill, third fill. This isn't something that's advertised on the bottle or on the packaging. Typically, um, you are trusting the distillery and you're trusting them to make those decisions for you. And then you're hoping they price it, they're pricing it correctly. And I think the big complaint is they're no, they're not pricing it correctly. A lot of these, um, a lot of these, uh, no way statement whiskeys are coming out at a high price point and they're costing too much money for what they are. I always sort of think the more information, the better. Uh, and then you can sort of make your choice based on that. You know, I've, I always like the fact that a lot of whiskey bottles will put a whole lot of information right there for you and you know where it comes from um how long it, how old it is you know 
and I think that then you sort of leave it up to the consumer to decide what they like the best. But I, I sort of like that idea. Yeah, I think, you know, and I mean, you know, I, I think that there's an experiment here done by the uh, marketing departments and distilleries to see if they can get away with it. And I don't, you know, I mean, we don't know the sales. I mean, we know uh, sales of uh, scotch in general have been down um, a bit. And of course, the you know, there's a debate as to whether or not that's because of the competition from other countries um, or if that's because of just economic differences. But it's, it, it probably, it probably, you know, competition has a big part of that. I'm sure, I'm, I think it does. Uh, you know, um, and we don't know what the sales are of these noise statement whiskeys, but I do think there's, it was an experiment here and I think the experiment is failing. I think the experiment was let's give people, uh, crappier whiskeys and see whether or not they can tell the difference. And I think they can, at least I think the whiskey critic community can tell the difference. So now you've got a situation of, you know, are the influencers in the industry making enough of an impact to hurt those sales? But on the other side, you have... My only argument of pro-noise statement whiskeys is this, and it's a very simple argument. It's like, um, if there aren't enough barrels and there's not enough demand, um, my 10 or 12-year-old standard whiskey might cost, let's, let's say, and nobody's told me the number, so I'm totally guessing. Let's say, you know, it costs 30% more to get my standard, you know, uh, 12-year-old whiskey. Am I okay paying 30% more for a standard 12? And I would say, no, no, I'm not. That would make that whiskey overpriced. Well, maybe by having these younger whiskeys and selling them to consumers that aren't necessarily whiskey critics, aren't necessarily, you know, in that category, maybe that helps offset the cost so they could keep pushing the 10 or 12s. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, that's a very good point. I, I mean, we've talked about this before. I don't think... There, I don't know if the whiskey critic community or the whiskey community is big enough. It's, I mean, that's a, that's kind of a, a similar um, argument to flavored whiskeys as well, which is let's appeal sort of broadly to maybe not our core drinkers um, and see how it goes. It doesn't. I mean, it. I think it offends people. Some, I think it's just, it, I, I think they get offended a little bit or upset or, you know, irritated with it. I don't think it stops them from buying whiskeys from that distillery. So as long as they continue offering their whiskey people what their whiskey people want, then maybe, yeah, I, I like that point. Yeah, I think you know. I mean, it, it's it's tough. It's a tough argument to make. Um, I think there's a lot of factors in here, and I, I think from the business side, there are real concerns from these distilleries that are needing to provide a product that have a choice of either selling out. And I think you know. And let's put this into perspective. If um, if so, McAllen McAllen is the big company that went no eight statement whiskey on all their brands for every country but the united states and the uk everywhere else you know here in canada you get your cyan you get your red you get your color that you do get a color and a price point and you're trusting mccallan to say this is a 180 dollars whiskey because we say it is we have you're not gonna have any clue as to what the age statement on that bottle is because they don't tell you um However, McAllen is a huge company with a huge production. Um, let's say their 12-year-old McAllen and their 10-year-old McAllen just sold out. I don't think people realize in, on the side of the corporations, I don't think, you know, 
the community realizes what that would do. That would mean their distributors would no longer have product. That would mean they would dry up their channels. That would mean they would lose those shelves that they've been gaining for you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Those shelves, that shelf space would be gone. Um, it's that brand of availability recognition wouldn't be there on all the stores and in the restaurants they're looking to achieve. That's a huge deal. And that's not a, oh, this is going to cost the company two months worth of sales deal. That's a, oh, crap, this might cost the company, you know, it might push them back five or 10 years in brand recognition and sales. I don't know if that would actually happen with the McAllen series, but if I was running the company, that would be a big concern for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, the industry isn't saying this. They're not saying this is what they're doing. They're not saying, oh, we don't want channels to do like, We're not being told any of this. Right. Um, I just, I try, I'm trying to look at it from the point of view of the business and what sort of business decision they're, decisions they're making. Um, and maybe, maybe that's a factor. Um, I think it's a failed experiment. I really, really do. I think um, Talisker is a great example. Their first no way statement whiskey was crap. I'm sorry. It was, it was terrible. It was a horrible whiskey. They're getting better with the newer, the, the later and later releases of noise statement whiskeys, but I think it's a failed experiment. I think when you start with a crappy product, you're never going to have that trust again. You're going to have, we like Telescar 10. Telescar 10 is awesome. Um, when you release a noise statement whiskey and the very first release is bad, I'm not likely to drink that second, third, or fourth release. You know, I mean, it's a big deal, and I think it, it, the big thing is, and I think, you know, going back to this article, uh, with quotes from uh, the Diageo brand ambassador, um, you know, and I think you know he acknowledged that this does break the trust with the whiskey community, and that's a problem. Um, and you know, and I think that's a very vocal problem. People are getting louder and louder about that. I think is this more of a problem for Scotch whiskey drinkers, or is this this is also becoming a problem for bourbon drinkers? Is the same sort of thing uh, happening in both industries? Yeah, I mean, I think there's signs of that in bourbon, right? Because you had like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of bourbons don't have age statements on them already. So, yeah. you know, 1792, they used to have an age statement, right? I think, Jamie, you mentioned this. They used to be an eight-year-old bourbon. They don't have that age statement anymore. Yeah. A lot of them are dropping that age statement. Yeah. yeah. And it was never important enough in bourbon so the consumers aren't necessarily there. And like I said, it's... I think that wiggle room in bourbon's a little bit greater. I think they've got a little bit more wiggle room. They can get away with it a little bit more and it could still produce a high quality product. Um, in bourbon, you don't necessarily have that. Um, uh, like, uh, for example, there's one blogger um, that has reviewed Ardbeg 10. Ardbeg 10, fantastic whiskey. Every year they release, you know, they, they release Ardbeg 10 in batches. Um, he's, he's gone through and he's reviewing like the last, like, 12 years of Ardbeg 10s and, and seeing how they're all, they're all great. Some are better than others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, I'm not really seeing that in like the bourbon community on stuff that gets released day to day. Certainly happens with, you know, antique collection and right. happies, yeah. which are rare releases or year annual releases, but, and stags and everything else. But I think, you know, generally, you know, your Buffalo Trace, your Eagle Rare are generally, they generally taste very, they, they taste the same or very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that margin of error is possibly a little more forgiving in bourbon Be- because they're using new oak, because the climate and the barrels are a little more predictable than they are with reused barrels and with the Scottish climate. Hmm. It's a theory. So I don't much, know if I'm right. No, so much new information. This is great. I love this. This is fantastic. I think my makeup is melting off my face. <laughs> now you know what it's like to be a woman. <laughs> no, I, it really is. I, I have like... Of course it is. Yeah, if you're like warm, it will start running down your face. 
especially TV makeup. So I literally before because because she actually like you also like realize all your so when you have this lady putting on makeup on your face you kind of realize like you don't see the changes over time but then you like look at a photo of yourself before and after like oh there's like blotches on your skin like my skin's imperfect I don't know as a guy living for decades now I've never realized my skin has blotches and faults and so I was like oh she resolved issues in my skin that I'm not going to be for the rest of my life insecure about I'm like oh my face is blotchy and so that's the problem number one problem number one is I've discovered my skin isn't perfect and i found but not only that but you felt the need to like put the stuff on my ears and i don't know why on my ears i'm like are my ears the wrong color what's going on why is there stuff on my ears so it's a bizarre unusual experience to go through and i really don't know what to make of it i have no idea this is fantastic because this is everything you've described is how women are what we deal with on like a daily basis so from from feeling self-conscious about your, you know, your blotchy skin. You've uh, noticed my blotchy and perfect no, skin, Jamie. No, I'm not. Well, I mean, no. <laughs> I, no, I haven't. Now I feel everybody's known all along my skin isn't perfect. I'm the only one that really thought I was like, oh, my skin is perfect. Uh, you have great skin. You have nothing to worry about, honestly. But it's it everything, it's everything you're saying. It's like, yep. That's yep. That sounds that sounds exactly. So it's kind of nice. You can sort of have a, a, like a taste of what it's like to be female for the day. Being like, oh, is my skin this? Is my skin imperfect? I should probably cover it up with this stuff that's probably not very good for <sighs> my skin. And then put oil all over my face and get it all over my hands. And I have my phone's always dirty from makeup. Like it's just you know, it's a whole thing. It's it's I I'm like I, I like I'm. I'm not going to lie. I don't feel bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it does. It's just a whole other experience. <laughs> then just before I'm about to go on the air, just before like the makeup person kind of just doesn't want to check over. She's like, oh, she's like, no, no, no. We, we need to tone her up a little bit. Let me let me just get let me just fix you up a little bit. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm too white. You got you got to add toner to my face. now. <laughs> I'm like, come on. You've already modified my face. Now I'm like, no, no, I need to get more. Uh, darker well, well welcome to welcome to the wonderful world of makeup it's uh <laughs> I, I feel when it comes to all this stuff uh, with men and women men just have no, no idea no clue just no clue. just 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 no clue well that was fun talking about scotch let's do it again you know jamie time for bottle number two it's time for yeah that's i mean i could go for a bottle two through five I just need to, <laughs> I need to make a commitment. <laughs> That's right. You don't want to limit yourself. No. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I think the scotch does give you a different profile and a different flavor sense. Um, I think the trick is to stay away from the smooth uh, scotches, which for bourbon drinkers are probably not. Because Jamie, you do not like a smooth whiskey. No. I, 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 drinking with you as much as you do, I know exactly what you like. A yeah. smooth whiskey that's going to be like, oh, this is so smooth. It's just not going to do it. It's just mm. not going to be a fun whiskey for you. No, no. I want something to punch me in the face. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of flavor. You just want flavor, 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 flavor. Yeah. Um, which is harder to find in single malt scotch. So we, we've mentioned some. I think like the Dalwini 15 is great. I think Glenfiddich 15 Distillery Edition is great. I think there's a lot of other ones we mentioned earlier. We'll have it in the show notes um, that are really good starter single malt scotches that um, are a great place to start. But just like with, you know, bourbons and rye, there's a difference. There's a difference between European oak and American oak and blending of the two and what your preferences are going to be. Yeah. Cool. 
Cool, man. Awesome. All right, Jamie, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, you can find me at Bourbon Thing. And you can find me at Mark Bylock, M-A-R-K-B-Y-L-O-K, on Twitter and websites and all that good stuff.